Welcome to episode 27, Privacy Matters, how to share client information while staying compliant with HIPAA and 42 CFR part two by Nick Merkin, California healthcare attorney. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Nick Merkin. I'm an attorney and a compliance consultant in the healthcare space. Um, and I'm here today to talk to you um, a little bit about HIPAA um, and some elements of that and best practices and what you need to know um, in the addiction treatment industry, um, as well as the applicability of uh, what we know as 42 CFR port part two, um, which are some additional regulations that um, at times and not always apply to um, those of us working in the addiction treatment industry. So we'll get into a little bit of that um, later on. So kind of as an overview, um, just to start things off, we'll talk about a little bit of HIPAA basics and you know what HIPAA is all about and uh, to whom and what kind of organizations or individuals HIPAA applies. Um, then we'll talk about a little bit of, you know, what what your responsibilities are under HIPAA um, as organizations um, in the addiction treatment industry. Um, and that's going to include sort of affirmative obligations that having to do with patient rights um, and, you know, responding to requests for information, um, as well as, um, the sort of protections that um, you need in terms of protecting confidential information and various uh, security kind of safeguards that um, the regulation and the government expects you to have in place. Um, then we'll round out by talking a little bit about breach and breach reporting. And uh, then then we'll have some things to say on 42 CFR part two. Um, so let's jump right into things because we only have an hour. And um, as, as most of you probably know, HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It was, um, it's a federal law, by the way. So um, it applies no matter what state you're in. And um, one thing I should mention as well is very often, depending on where you're located, there may be various state laws that apply as well. Um, I obviously can't speak to, um, you know, the whole spectrum of 50 states um, in this one hour lecture. Um, but, you know, you, you should make sure that in addition to HIPAA, um, that you're aware of your sort of local or state specific requirements. And, um, you know, you ask the right questions of a competent attorney or other kind of compliance expert um, about what obligations you might have under that. But today we're going to focus uh, mainly on the federal overlay. Um, which is known as HIPAA. Um, so it was enacted in 1996 by Congress to develop regulations to protect the privacy and security of certain kinds of health information. Um, and there are penalties for noncompliance, um, fines, monetary penalties, etc. Um, and the, uh, the enforcement agency that actually sort of oversees the implementation of HIPAA is called the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, and it's a branch um, of the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and we're currently in phase two of an audit program um, that the OCR um, has in effect where they're um, at certain times auditing 
various healthcare organizations for HIPAA compliance. So something to watch out for. It's um, not something that happens too often in most addiction treatment organizations are on the smaller side of the healthcare spectrum. Um, but if you do get uh, involved in an OCR audit, it's uh, something to take seriously and something that, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you have the right expertise and knowledge in place to respond to. Um, so let's continue on with HIPAA basics a little bit and some definitions because there's a lot of jargon that gets um, used in HIPAA and I want to make sure that we're all kind of speaking the same language. Um, so first of all, um, there's something called a covered entity. And a covered entity is basically a healthcare provider. It can also be a health plan or a health insurer or what's called a healthcare clearinghouse. But um, for most of our purposes, that's going to be, you know, an organization that delivers some kind of care. And that, you know, addiction treatment um, organizations fall into that space. Um, slightly different than a covered entity is what we call a business associate. Um, and so that's a third party that maintains or transmits or um, discloses or uses um, protected health information on behalf of a covered entity. Um, and PHI stands for, or, or PHI constitutes individually identifiable health information um, that belongs to a patient. Sometimes you'll hear the term ePHI, and that really just means the same thing as PHI um, in electronic form. So two other thing, two other sort of terms that I want to cover, and you know they may seem obvious, but one is use. Um, and what does it mean to use PHI? So, you know, use constitutes the sharing, um, applying, or or examination or analysis um, of any kind of PHI within a covered entity. Um, and disclosure is any kind of release or transfer um, or provision of access to um, PHI outside the covered entity holding that information. So. Um, those are important important definitions to sort of keep in mind because knowing when HIPAA applies and in what way it applies um, is going to be related to um, to some of those definitions. So let's let's move forward with a little bit on um, who does HIPAA apply to. Um, so we talked about both covered entities and business associates, right? So we're sort of square on what those definitions are. And, um, you know, like I said, covered entities are in the main healthcare providers. And um, many of you work for those kinds of organizations. Um, it should be said, by the way, although I'm trying to direct um, this talk to um, organizations and treatment facilities in the addiction treatment industry, a lot of what I'm saying really applies um, no matter what kind of healthcare organization you're working in. Um, a lot would apply to skilled nursing facilities or hospitals, physician practices, etc. So if you're listening to this and um, you're not specifically involved um, in addiction treatment, um, you know, stay with us because a lot of this is going to apply to you. Um, so let's talk about one concept, and um, that's the business associate agreement. So, um, you know, a business associate agreement is essentially a contract that governs the use and disclosure and protection of information between a covered entity um, and a business associate. For example, um, you're an addiction treatment facility, um, you know, maybe you're hiring 
um, an outside consultant, um, some kind of clinical director or something to come in and help with your programming. Um, that clinical director, who's not part of your organization, would be a business associate. And um, HIP is going to require that you enter into what's called a business associate agreement um, with that individual or organization to ensure that the business associate is going to appropriately safeguard PHI. Um, it's a real pitfall, by the way. A lot of um, organizations don't know this or they skip this step. Um, and it's something that, number one, in an audit, um, people are going to look at and make sure that you know your vendors, your business associates that you're working with, you have valid business associates agreements with. Um, and also, the business associate agreement protects you as a covered entity. It's not really just boilerplate because it's going to govern the responsibilities that the business associates that you're working with have to you to protect information about patients that are or clients that you're giving them. Um, so, you know, very important. Um, so, you know, we don't have time today to go through all the elements of what constitutes a, an effective business associate agreement. Um, you know, what I would say is um, various governmental agencies, specifically the Department of Health and Human Services, I believe, have sample business associates agreements on their website that you can use as a template. Um, but, you know, take what's written in there seriously. You may want to consult with an attorney um, before you make things, uh, you know, before you finalize a form. And, um, you know, very often if you're working with another provider or a covered entity, they may have a business, a form of business associate agreement that they want you to sign. Um, you know, that might be okay, but take care to read it and, you know, make sure you truly understand what your rights are under it and what your responsibilities are under it as well. Um, so let's move on a little bit to, um, you know, to whom does HIPAA apply? So, or, or, you know, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. You know, we talked about, um, protected health information. And that's the kind of information that's, um, you know, going to be regulated and governed by HIPAA. So, you know, that's really a subset of all information. And in, in it's even smaller subset of health information. Um, you know, specifically, it's health information that's individually identifiable. Um, it doesn't apply to de-identified information. Um, and specifically with regard to HIPAA, it's going to apply to electronic protected health information. Um, so, you know, keep in mind that um, the definition of PHI, protected health information, is fairly broad. Um, you know, basically anything that relates to um, the health of a patient, and that can be um, a recorded telephone call just about the time of an appointment. Um, you know, that could be things that make that information individually identifiable, like a date of birth, an address, a phone number. Um, so the definition of PHI is rather broad um, and, you know, probably on the safe side to be over-inclusive, um, but it doesn't apply to everything, you know, particularly what you're thinking about are um, items that are de-identified, where it would be, even if you disclose them, impossible to tell, um, you know, 
which specific individual or patient they relate to. Um, so keep that in mind. And, you know, when you have a question, make sure that you're looking in the right places for answers, whether it's looking up a definition or, or talking to someone with expertise in the area. Um, let's talk about some more HIPAA requirements. And, um, you know, that's the designation of a HIPAA privacy and security officer. Um, so, you know, in many organizations, particularly ones that are of a relatively small size, and I should say healthcare organizations of relatively small size, and that's going to um, encompass, I think, a lot of addiction treatment kind of facilities or individuals working in that space, um, you know, are not going to have full-time HIPAA privacy and a separate security officer. But that being said, um, it is a good practice to have someone or, or, you know, it can be more than one person designated with that kind of responsibility. Um, and, you know, just definitionally, the privacy officer is really the go-to person um, at the organization regarding things like HIPAA-related policies and procedures. That person might have, um, you know, responsibilities for overseeing the process of receiving and documenting tracking and taking action on any kind of complaints regarding HIPAA that you might get, ensuring compliance with different kind of privacy practices, and then working with whomever is the HIPAA security officer to review, you know, security plans and system-related information. Um, so, you know, a good practice, no matter what your size is, is to make sure that someone in your organization is wearing that hat and that it's someone that's qualified. Um, and again, the security officer is a similar role, but really someone who's responsible for developing and updating information security requirements um, for the covered entity's PHI. That person's always going to work closely with HIPAA privacy officer, or again, might be the same person, but essentially they're going to make sure, and we'll talk a little bit about some of these um, uh, security requirements later on in this hour, um, but they're basically going to make sure that things like administrative, physical, and technical safeguards um, are working properly um, within an organization. So, um, you know, that's, again you know, it's sort of a major HIPAA requirement and a good best practice. Um, another issue is education. And, you know, some of this is what we're doing now. And the reason that many of you may be listening to this uh, presentation and um, what's required is HIPAA requires that there be an education of the workforce, um, you know, whether they be staff, volunteers, etc on HIPAA rules and regulations. So, you know, any sta all staff members really should be trained upon hire and then no less than annually thereafter. Um, and one thing that I would caution is, you know, document that training. That's really a job for the HIPAA privacy officer that we talked about. What you want to be able to do is prove a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, um, that your staff got that training. And, you know, when it might come up is, there could be a breach and, um, you know, we all sort of feel, well, it'll never happen to us, but, um, you know, breaches happen. There's human error, there's hacking, there's phishing, there's all types of reasons um, that could cause a breach, even an honest mistake. But one of the ways that you're going to be able to, you know, mitigate the problems, fines, penalties, anything else and liability that might come from that breach is by 
being able to point to, well, we had a pretty robust training program and here's all my training records for the last couple of years, proving to you that, yeah, although a staff person made a mistake, that person, you know, was well-trained, we did our best in good faith, um, but a mistake happened, human error. And that's going to go a long way. And I would say this for, you know, just about everything we're talking about today. Um, make sure you document. If you have a HIPAA security officer, privacy officer, document that person's appointment, document that person's qualifications, document that person's role and responsibilities. Um, again, because you're going to want to use that as a, as a defense in the case that there ever is a breach. Um, let's move on to a couple of other HIPAA requirements. And, you know, we're moving kind of quickly over sort of, you know, vast swaths of HIPAA, so to speak. But um, what I really want to do in this hour is give all of you who are listening a flavor of the different kind of practical requirements that are probably going to apply in your organization um, and then give you the opportunity to, you know, yourselves um, dig deeper into the specific requirements and the specific ways that you're going to implement those requirements within your organization. Um, so another thing to talk about is what's called a notice of privacy practice. So that's a notice um, that the entity is going to give to patients, clients about their rights regarding uh, the privacy of their PHI. Um, so, you know, the covered entity is required to give notice to each patient upon admission, and each patient should sign an acknowledgement of receipt. Um, again, you know, there are a lot of good templates you can use out there from um, very reputable organizations that you can find for your notice of privacy practices. Um, but, you know, similarly to a business associate agreement, um, you know, you want to make sure that you know it's in there because that, again, is a document that is going to govern some of your obligations as an organization to a patient um, and promise a lot of the safeguards, um, you know, that, that patients are required to be given under HIPAA. And you want to make sure, you know, you know what those promises are and that you're effectively able to deliver on those. Um, a couple of other just nits you should... Um, post publicly your notice of privacy practice, um, you know, somewhere probably close to the admissions area um, of your organization. And um, it should really be accessible on your website as well. So, um, you know, again, things to keep in mind, it's a little bit of a check the box thing. But, um, you know, one of the things that I want to underscore to all of you who are listening is, um, there's a lot of paperwork and there's a lot of documents in HIPAA and in, every, in, in other areas of compliance as well. Um, it's a good idea to you know, know what you're saying and because you're making promises and you're accepting obligations um, in those documents. So, you know, these aren't necessarily one size fits all for all organizations. And, you know, it makes me nervous as an attorney when I see that one organization has adopted um, either a business associate agreement or a notice of privacy practices or even just a whole set of HIPAA policies and procedures from an organization that's just completely differently situated than them. Because chances are there's going to be a lot of things in there um, that aren't going to have universal application. Um, and you're going to want to be careful, you know, about promises you're making. So let's talk um, 
a little bit um, about uses and disclosure of PHI. So, you know, a covered entity in general um, can disclose PHI without the patron's authorization um, when the information is used to facilitate things in three different areas. And those areas are treatment, payment, or healthcare operations. Um, so, you know, there's other sort of more minor exceptions, um, like public health activities and where there's abuse, neglect, and domestic violence, um, and things that you should be aware of. Um, and, you know, those are the kinds of things that your either corporate compliance officer or whoever's your, you know, HIPAA privacy compliance, um, officer, you know, should be more aware of. Um, but generally speaking, um, any disclosure of PHI outside of those areas of treatment, payment, or healthcare operations um, are going to require the entity or the organization to obtain a written authorization from the patient before that disclosure. Um, and it's important to get it in writing. It's important that the disclosure take a certain form. Um, there are, and I should caution you, there are federal rules under HIPAA about, you know, what need, what a disclosure needs to contain. Um, and in California, for example, and I know in many other states, um, there are specific state laws pertaining to your disclosure forms. So, you know, make sure you know in your locality what the specifics of disclosure requirements are in terms of documentation and that you're following those. Um, so, you know, a couple things um, just to keep in mind. And, you know, in general, the forms are going to have a clear description of the information to be disclosed. Um, they're going to talk about the purpose of the request for disclosure. They may have an expiration date of the authorization. Um, and they're going to talk a little bit about the patient's rights with respect to the organization. Um, it's also important to realize that a patient can revoke his or her authorization at any times. Um, and, you know, it's, you need to keep your ducks in a row and your documentation straight about these things. Because one of the major areas um, that I see organizations getting in trouble um, with HIPAA breaches is not necessarily an accidental breach or one of the things you see on TV or read about in the papers, um, you know, where there's some, you know, massive hack going on. Um, but it's the little things. It's, um, you know, losing track of what I need to obtain a disclosure for, you know, the validity of that disclosure, how long, to whom um, the information may be disclosed to, and, um, you know, and, and violating HIPAA rules because of that. Um, and it's an easy way to just get caught up in something. And, you know, it, I'm sure it goes without saying to many of us, we work in a field in addiction treatment where, um, you know, the privacy of our clients is, is really paramount. Um, you know, in, in some ways, probably even more acutely so than in more general areas of healthcare. Um, and, you know, those are for obvious reasons that, you know, the nature of addiction and, you know, not wanting, um, even close family members at times to know the extent of, um, you know, what the client may be going through. And the client may have 
all sorts of reasons they want to maintain privacy, um, including employment, including from even their insurance company for various reasons. Um, so, you know, HIPAA in general, and specifically disclosures, voluntary disclosures of PHI or something, um, you know, to be taken very, very seriously in any area of healthcare. Um, and I would argue, you know, even specifically um, in the addiction treatment world. Um, let's move on to a different concept. Um, and that's what's called the minimum necessary standard. Um, and so there's a standard called the minimum necessary standard that applies um, whenever an organization is making use of PHI. And keep in mind, this is in a situation or in situations where because the uh, uh, because a HIPAA exception applies, like treatment, payment, or operations, um, individuals in the organizations have every right um, and even a responsibility um, to examine or analyze a patient's PHI. Um, but the principle still applies that the covered entity should only use or disclose the minimum necessary amount of information in order to achieve their purpose. So for example, um, and I'll give some examples just, um, you know, in general in healthcare, um, if nursing staff is assigned to a particular nursing station, um, they should only be authorized to access information for patients that they're treating at that station. Um, you know, and, you know, to extend that example to the addiction treatment setting, um, you may be a counselor and you may not be assigned to every single client um, in your organization. You should really, your access to PHI should really only be limited to what you need to deliver the kind of care um, that's necessary for your particular patients. Um so, you know, it's, 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 an actual, it's actually a very important standard and something that really has to underlie anything you're doing with PHI. Um, and believe it or not, it's actually a breach um, to, uh, to exceed the minimum necessary standard, even if you're a bona fide employee of the healthcare organization and that organization has a general right to look at PHI. Um, some of you may remember a few years back, um, a particular celebrity's PHI was viewed by healthcare workers um, at UCLA, <clears throat> and it created a big scandal for um, for the hospital system because there, you know, this this patient was a celebrity, um, and there were individuals within UCLA healthcare who, um, you know, for voyeurism or for whatever reason, you know, wanted to check out uh, that celebrity's. Uh, um, healthcare information and they did so and you know they wound up getting fired and became an embarrassment for UCLA so that's you know just an example of you know kind of something that seems simple but um, you know a standard that has to be upheld in the minimum necessary to standard um, a couple of other just nits about disclosure and PHI um, number one the uh, disclosure should be tracked. So anytime you're, um, you know, outside of normal treatment, payment, or operations, disclosing PHI to a, a party outside of your organization, obviously with the patient's permission, you should be tracking those disclosures in writing, who you're giving it to, when, what the extent of the PHI release was. You should keep an accounting of that for at least six years. Um, again, you know, a job for the HIPAA privacy officer. 
Um, and that's really because a patient can request an accounting of their disclosure um, from you, and you have to give them that information. Um, so, you know, keep that in mind. And, you know, with that, let's move a little bit on to um, the concept of patient rights. Um, you know, we, we often think of HIPAA as like sort of a, uh, a list of thou shalt nots, right? Thou shalt not disclose this, thou shalt not disclose that. Um, actually, there's, you know, the other half of HIPAA, so to speak, is about what rights of access to PHI that patients have. And it's an important right because um, actually not giving a patient or a client um, access to his or her PHI at, um, you know, within a reasonable amount of time might be a HIPAA violation in and of itself. So, um, you know, a patient in, in a general sense, and, you know, again, I keep cautioning this at every turn, there are going to be some specific state laws, depending on your locality, that might apply to this, it might change some of the timings, it might change some of the responsibilities that you have as an organization to give um, access to PHI and other rights to patients. Um, make sure you have those in mind. So, you know, a patient has a, right, a general right to access their PHI for, um, by submitting a written request or an oral request to the covered entity. Um, they can request to inspect it, to get a copy of it, to get a summary of their PHI. Um, you know, make sure you're taking those requests seriously, making sure you're documenting them. Um, you know, they have a right to, if it's ePHI, they can the patient can specify the form and format they want it in. Um, and, you know, under HIPAA, at least, there's, uh, you have a, uh, a 24 hours to respond to a request for access to PHI and 48 hours to respond to a request for a copy of a patient's PHI. So the, the deadlines are pretty tight. So, um, you know, make sure that from an operational perspective in your organization, you have, um, you know, the policies in effect and in place um, that's going to allow you to be responsive to that. And, um, you know, there's, there are reasons that you can deny PHI and you have to make sure that you're only giving, you know, you're only giving access to PHI, um, that's appropriate under HIPAA. Um, the details of that are a little bit too broad for, uh, or I should say a little bit too specific for, um, discussion today, but, you know, again, something to keep in mind. Um, Another issue is amendment of PHI. Patients have a right to amend their PHI if something is inaccurate in their record. Um, they've got to submit that request in writing to you, and you need you know you get only thirty days to respond. Um, you know it's an, it's something that does come up, particularly in the addiction treatment space, um, because sometimes there is information. Uh, that can be put in PHI that the patient feels is unfair or untrue, and that might affect their um, insurance coverage. That may affect something that a future healthcare provider sees or a family member sees. So it actually does come up. Obviously, you only make the amendment um, if it's appropriate and there's actually an inaccuracy um, in the patient's record, um, but it's something to take seriously and something that does come up in the addiction treatment space. Um, one or two other things to uh, to mention that that come up from time to time um, in um, in the addiction treatment world. One is a patient has a right to ask for restriction on disclosure. Um, so 
even if it's um, for one of the permitted reasons, like treatment, payment, and operations, um, if there's an appropriate reason, uh, the patient can say, I don't want my um, healthcare information released to, you know, let's say a certain provider. Um, or they can even say that there, you know, might be a certain staff member that they don't feel comfortable with having access to their BHI. Um, they're allowed to request that. I mean, there are some limitations to what they can request on impracticality and appropriateness. Um, but in a general sense, patients have the right to agree or object to the uses and disclosures of PHI, even if those uses and disclosures are otherwise appropriate. Um, you know, they may not want to be listed in some kind of directory. They may not want to, um, you know, give out information as to location or general health conditions, certain um, physicians for whatever reasons. Um, and even, um, they can even make that request with respect to their health care plan. Um, so, you know, it, that's only going to apply to conditions where the patient, where the patient is paying out of pocket to begin with. But there are cases that come up in the addiction treatment area where a patient does not want to use their health insurance for certain reasons because they don't want, um, their addiction treatment to be part of their medical record. Um, as long as they're paying out of pocket, they can actually request that that information be withheld from their general medical record. Um, there's some nuances of this, and I would encourage you if you get this kind of request um, to speak to an attorney or someone with expertise on how to govern this. Um, but it's something to take seriously, you know, if it does come up. Okay, so let's move on. We've talked about, you know, sort of one of the major buckets of HIPAA compliance, which is privacy. Um, now let's talk a little bit about our responsibilities as organizations in terms of security and safeguarding PHI. So in a general sense, the HIPAA regulations require that we safeguard PHI at all times. So, you know, any kind of covered entity is going to be expected to protect against any reasonably anticipated you know, use and disclosure of PHI that's not permitted. And that means that the confidentiality, the integrity, the availability of ePHI that the covered entity creates or it receives or maintains or transmits. And so it may be the case that you have health information that you as an organization didn't produce, but that's given to you um, in the course of treatment. Um, again, that's going to be something that you need to safeguard as well. So within that, um, you know, sort of big bucket of HIPAA security, um, there are sort of three smaller divisions um, into different kinds of safeguards. And that's, I think I mentioned them before, administrative safeguards, physical safeguards, and technical safeguards. Um, so let's talk a little bit um, about what constitutes all these things. And again, um, you know, this... It would be too specific to uh, to speak about you know exactly how you accomplish um, all of these things in the scope of this one hour presentation, um, but you know these are areas where very often um, if you're extensively using um, an electronic system in your healthcare facility or addiction treatment facility, um, you know you want to make sure that 
even over and above any kind of legal or compliance advice that you're seeking, you know, good IT security advice with uh, different, different, uh, you know, your IT team, your security experts. So, you know, here are, here are sort of the general categories of things that fall into each bucket um, to which you should be sensitive. Number one, let's talk about administrative. So that's going to be your policy, your organizational policies and procedures um, that relate to HIPAA privacy and security. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you've got a set of those that are good, um, that actually tell your staff how to address and how to deal with um you know, both the sort of thou shalt's and thou shalt nots areas of HIPAA. Um, they want to be, you want them to be clear and not ambiguous, and you want staff to be able to access those policies and procedures for guidance when they're needed. Um, training is another part of the administrative safeguards like we're doing today. Um, again, you want to make sure that your staff, whether it's during onboarding or whether it's during, um, you know, I would say, again, not less than a year year at a time um, in between trainings, but that people in your organization are trained and specifically on those policies and procedures and their applicability to your organization. Um, things like having defined employee access to PHI. So we talked about minimum necessary. Um, you know, what you want to make sure, and this can be accomplished in an electronic way, um, and in terms of physical PHI, um, you know, just with locks and keys, is everybody in your organization does not necessarily need to have um, access to every bit of PHI within the organization. Um, you know, to use sort of a cliched term, um, access to PHI should really be on a need-to-know basis. Um, and make sure you have the infrastructure set up that um, that allows that to be the case. Um, a couple of other things, you know, contingency plans in case of emergencies. Um, you know, depending on where you live, you may have hurricanes, fires, earthquakes, all sorts of things. Um, and even just things like power failures or computer glitches. Um, you know, you're, you're housing healthcare information that may be very important to treat a patient or a client. Um, you want to make sure that you have safeguards in place um, in the case where, um, you know, your systems go down or, you know, because of natural disaster or anything like that. Um, you know, that could be backup systems, redundancies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, last bit of that is your business associates agreement. Again, we sort of talked about that at length, um, but make sure you have those in place for all your um, business associates and that they're, you know, you understand what they say and that they, in fact, do say what you want them to and you intend them to. So that's basically the category of administrative safeguards. You know, and again, um, beyond the scope to really delve deeply into each element of those um, today, but, you know, my purpose is really to sensitize you um, as to, you know, the important areas of each and so that you can ask the right questions um, when you talk internally within your organization about how you may be addressing those. Um, so let's talk about physical. So that's things like, you know, obvious things like locked file cabinets and visitor sign-ins and limited access. Um, you know, things like shredding, shredding um, PHI that's no longer necessary, making sure that when you dispose of something that it's disposed of in a correct way. Simple things like workstation security. Um, 
you know, having, uh, you know, don't have things facing out your window or to the public that's going to contain information that you don't want people to be able to access or see. Um, you know, a lot of these things are obvious, but they're worth making part of your training to your staff um, because it sensitizes them to this. And um, a lot of times, you know, the things that are very obvious, we can sometimes think about less in an ironic sense. Um, so let's talk about some technical security aspects. So, you know, one is password protection. Um, you know, shouldn't need repeating today to have um, robust passwords. You know, don't make them password one, two, three. Don't have them in a sticky note on your, you know, computer monitor. Um, make sure that you um, you have a situation in place where if there's PHI on your computers that um, after a certain amount of time those screens lock if someone leaves to lunch or goes to the bathroom um, you know an automatic log off um, make sure if you're transmitting PHI that you have um, encryption and decryption mechanisms in place um, again too detailed to go into how exactly you do that um, but the, those who you know work with you on the IT side are going to know what to do um, you know back up your data have identity authentication and um, have protocols in place and this should really be part of your policies and procedures regarding the uh, introduction removal of hardware and software um, in your network if you're a covered entity um, you know a lot of this stuff is not that complicated, but you know you should be sensitive to it and make sure that it gets done, and it gets done correctly within your organization. So, let's move on a little bit um, to breaches and reporting and penalties. So, you know, first of all, let's talk about what a breach is, and um, you know what I would say is. Um, number one, if you're in a situation where you think a breach may have occurred, you know, within their your organization, there should be a hierarchy of people to talk to about that. Um, before we even get into any of the details of this, resist the urge to, you know, kind of cover something up or bury someone. It's sort of human nature. None of us wants to get blamed for something. Um, the reality is that most breach situations can be resolved fairly quickly and easily with a minimum of, you know, any kind of liability or, you know, financial impact or anything along those lines. Um, if they're dealt with early and transparently um, and you get the right people involved. Um, and, you know, that's that's something, of course, we all struggle with because you might be tempted to say, oh, well, I sent that fax to the wrong person, not sure who got it, but no one's ever going to know. I'll just leave it alone. It's not the way to deal with that situation. That's actually a common situation. It's a easy situation to resolve. It's an easy situation to document. And if you don't resolve it the right way, um, which might take you 30 seconds in the onset, um, you know, you may be resolving that in six months with lawyers and litigation and, you know, a complaint investigation against your organization. So, you know, resist the urge about that. So let's talk about definitionally a little bit what a breach is. So, you know, any kind of unauthorized acquisition of data that compromises 
the security, confidentiality, or integrity of personal information maintained by the covered entity. Um, that's going to be what a breach is. Um, you know, improperly using or disclosing PHI, whether it's by a staff member or a vendor, if you violate HIPAA laws or state laws and, you know, even your own policies and procedures, that can constitute a breach. Um, but basically, any kind of impermissible use or disclosure of PHI is presumed to be a breach unless your organization demonstrates there's a low probability that the PHI has been compromised. And what I will tell you is that is going to be the case in nine out of 10 situations where you have an accidental breach. You know, that might be, I gave the example with a fax machine, that might be you send an email with PHI to Sally that really should have gone to Susie. Now, in an ideal situation, that information would have been encrypted, so it wouldn't have mattered whether it was sent to the wrong person because the recipient wouldn't have had a, an encryption key to be able to open it. Um, but even if that were not the case, you know, you can pretty much determine relatively quickly that there's a low probability that the PHI has been compromised because you probably know Sally or Susie, I forget who the inadvertent person was, um, and you can call her and you can say, please destroy that. Can you confirm to me that nobody viewed that or is making use of that PHI? Um, and can you send me, you know, a written confirmation of its destruction? And that's true. Very easy ways to address and solve these problems. Um, and doing that kind of analysis is what's called a risk assessment. And you should do a risk assessment for every potential breach, no matter how small. Um, and, you know, the things that you want to measure are what was the nature and extent of the PHI involved? You know, one, one question might be, we think we had a breach of something, but we're not even sure whether what was, you know, inadvertently disclosed even constitutes PHI. First question to ask. Um, whether the person who used the PHI, um, you know, who that was, they, were they an authorized person or a non-authorized person? Um, you know, are they kind of friend or foe? Is it someone who you faxed it to a wrong hospital or medical practice? Um, you know, probably an easy situation to solve. Um, again, whether the PHI was actually acquired or viewed. You know, if you have the right things like encryption in place, the answer to that is going to be no. Um, the answer to that might be no as well, depending on who you sent it to. And you can make those kinds of determinations. Um, and then the extent to which the risk to the PHI has been mitigated. Um, you know, it might have been viewed, but if it's to a medical practice that you have a long history with and a working relationship with, the answer might be asking them to destroy it and ensuring that no one is going to make use of that PHI again. All that is going to be part of your risk assessment. Um, and that's going to make a difference that, uh, you know, whether or not you have an actual breach on your hand. Uh, other things to consider is breach exclusions. So, you can have an internal breach exclusion, which means, you know, technically you might have a breach, but if there's unintentional use of PHI by a workforce member, um, that doesn't constitute a breach. Um, you can have an external inadvertent disclosure, um, you know, by a person who's allowed to access PHI to another person allowed to access PHI at the same entity. Um, but it might have just been the wrong patient. Again, that's going to be a breach exclusion. Um, and then 
The third is going to be information that can't be retained. So, um, you know, if you believe that the party who accessed the information just wasn't real reasonably able to obtain it. So, for example, a visitor comes in and assists someone in, in your staff and picking up a chart that was dropped on the floor. Well, you know, there's no way that that visitor retained any of the information on that chart. Um, you don't have a breach. So let's talk a little bit about breach reporting. And um, I'm not going to go into too many of the specific details here because um, breach reporting is complex. If you do have a situation where, you know, you have concern that there's a breach, um, I would very much encourage you to seek legal counsel or seek the you know, competent advice um, from someone with expertise on the proper way to report things. Um, you know, there's going to be different rules in effect depending on your locality um, as to how long you have to report a breach, when you have to report a breach, etc., etc. Um and you want to make sure you get that right. Obviously, you don't want to over-report because you don't want to report something you don't have to. It looks bad for you, and it can be public and, and increase your liability. By the same token, you don't want to under-report and not report something and then have that come back to you know, hit you because if you fail to report something that you should have, then you're really talking about fines and penalties. And, you know, that's when the stuff you read about on TV or on the internet really comes into play. Um, one thing to keep in mind is breaches by a business associate. Um, you know, in your cover, in your business associate agreements, there is going to be um, an allocation of liability for that. Um, and there's going to be requirements that your business associate notifies you immediately. Um, and it's hopefully going to spell out that your business associate is directly liable, um, you know, for its breach. So, you know, make sure you are, again, with any of this, um, asking people the right expertise and documenting, documenting, documenting all these steps, you know, documenting the fact that you had a potential breach, documenting that you've done your risk assessment, documenting, you know, how you've resolved that situation. If you have reported something, you know, make sure you're, you are going ahead and reporting it appropriately. Um, you know, talk a little bit about penalties, um, and I won't get into specifics because, again, they change any time, and um, it's not really my purpose here to talk fire and brimstone. But, um, you know, even with unintentional breaches, you can get in, you can get into a situation where they're, you know, $100 per violation. And unfortunately, we live at a time, well, I should probably say fortunately, we live at a time where a lot of health records are electronic. And that's really been a game changer. And the reason for that is the following. Um, you know, back in the day when almost all PHI was paper-based, there was kind of a limit to how much, you know, mischief you could get into. If you made a mistake, um, you know, one patient's PHI, two patient's PHI, um, you know, let's say you took a couple of files home and they, you know, you misplaced them. Um, today we live at a time because of, you know, tech, technological savvy and progress that you could hit the wrong button and, you know, 50,000 patients or 
why its PHI gets distributed somewhere um, or through, you know, a network tech or something like that. Um, that's kind of raised the stakes a little bit. And even, you know, inadvertent breaches can be a minimum penalty of $100 per individual affected. And, you know, when you're talking about a thousand or 2000 people, you know, doing the multiplication, that can be a very high number relatively quickly, even for a sort of a minor incident. So, you know, that's really all I'll say about, uh, about fines and penalties. So let's move on, um, to 42 CFR port two. Um, and this is an area where, you know, from people in the addiction treatment space, I get a lot of questions about. Um, so a little bit of background. So um, back on January 18th, 2017, a final rule was released, um, which updated the regulation um, regarding the confidentiality of alcohol and drug abuse patient records. Um kind of the first meaningful update in the last 30 years. Um, for a while, it was actually halted by the Trump administration and then later fully intimate, uh, fully implemented. Um, and, you know, essentially what this 42 CFR Part 2 does is it's an in-addition rule to HIPAA, and um, it requires specific consents on the part of the patient, except for in very little in the circumstances. Um, if the PHI, if the patient records um, have to do with alcohol or drug abuse. So um, it's a little bit of a, you know, recognizing that the issue that we talked about earlier, which is that um, these are, you know, very, uh, th this information is very sensitive and perhaps even more sensitive than general health information. Um, you know, the government moved forward on this. Um, so let's talk about to whom and what um, 42 CFR Part 2 applies. So it doesn't apply to everyone. And in fact, I think it probably applies to a very small segment of the addiction treatment community. Um, so information is protected um, under Part 2 if it would identify a patient as having or having had a substance use disorder either directly by reference to publicly available information or through the verification of information by another person and is obtained by a federally exist, um, assisted drug abuse program. That's called a part two program. So we got to talk about what the definition of this. And again, um, the application of whether your organization is part of a part two program, that's sort of the colloquial term for it, can be technical. Um, I'm certainly can't, you know, I certainly can't give you legal advice um, in this forum as to um, whether or not you're part of a part two program. Um, so, you know, seek, seek competent counsel about that and expertise, but I'll tell you just sort of the, um, the, the general outline of it. So a part two program holds itself out to provide substance abuse disorder treatment and is either, um, conducted either directly or by contract by a federal agency carried out pursuant to a license or certification or registration granted by a federal agency. So for example, uh, Medicare providers, um, 
it can be a recipient of federal assistance, either directly or indirectly, um, or conducted by a state or local government which receives federal funds, um, or is a tax-exempt entity. So 401c3 um, would fall under this category. So, you know, again, those are those can be pretty complex in application. Um, you may already know whether or not you're subject to 42 CFR Part 2. Um, if you're not, the good news is that, um, you know, this isn't going to directly apply to you, although um, it's always a good practice to sort of, you know, keep some of these strictures in mind. Um, but, um, you know, you can sort of coast through the last couple minutes of this presentation if it doesn't apply to you. Um, but let's just talk about the sort of patient consent overlay of this. And, you know, again, 42 CFR Part 2 is sort of a longer um, set of regulations. I'm kind of just hitting on the highlights, but, um, you know, if, if you're subject to them, um, you should, you know, seek the right expertise to um, talk to someone about how to implement these regulations in your organization with a little more specificity. But, you know, that said, let's talk about them in general. So previously, you know, we talked about a consent for disclosure and, you know, what that constituted early on in this presentation. Um, and so previously for a consent to be valid, um, you would have to designate each individual entity um, to whom a disclosure could be made. So a couple of things that are that are that have now changed is a patient can now consent to disclosures to all of his or her treating providers without naming one. Um, but if a patient designates it, the patient has to have the option to request a, a list of the people entities that received his or her records. So you're going to have to keep that on their behalf. Um, Additionally, the amount and the kind of information shared has to be more specific. So patients can consent to disclosure of all of their substance use disorder records, um, but they also have to be given more granular options, such as uh, medication, substance abuse history, employment information, or living situations. And those options have to be specific enough for the recipient to identify the information necessary for its stated purpose. So, you know, a couple of other things, redisclosure of information that may identify a patient is going to be prohibited. Um, without a consent, protected records can only be disclosed in certain situations, um, like audits and evaluations, research and medical emergencies, um, and to an entity that provides services like legal accounting population help to a part two program. Um, so again, those, those are some pretty specific exceptions and, um, you know, you have to consider very deeply, you know, what applies. Um, one thing to, to keep in mind as well, um, just like HIPAA, if there are state laws that are stricter than, than uh, 42 CFR part two, um, they're not preempted. Um, so meaning you have to follow those state laws as well. So again, whatever locality you might be in, um, make sure you're aware um, of, uh, you know, of what applies to you. So, you know, there's still, uh, you know, I would say that coordinating privacy concerns and care, um, 
you know, one of the things that I think comes out of this presentation is, uh, is a persistent challenge. On one hand, um, you know, you need to be able to disclose and disseminate and use protected health information to effectively treat your clients and patients. Um, on the other hand, you know, rightfully so, there are many kind of protections that apply. Um, and it's often a challenge to, um, to, you know, to strike the balance necessary to sort of respect both areas of concern. Um, so, you know, I hope that uh, this presentation has been helpful. Um, and um, again, this, um, you know, was designed to really give you an overview and a flavor of a lot of the pertinent areas of HIPAA privacy and security, as well as 42 CFR Part 2 that applied um in the substance abuse community and to substance abuse treatment organizations. Um, you know, if you have specific questions, um, you're welcome to write in to me or to, you know, seek them from, um, you know, other competent experts that you may already have access to. Um, and I encourage you to do so. So I hope you've enjoyed today's presentation. Thank you for your time and attention. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.